welcome to today's episode. Today I am continuing Neville Goddard's lecture titled The Promise Fulfilled. So if you haven't listened to the first episode, so part one of the lecture, um, I would recommend perhaps listening to that first and um, and then coming back to part two. All right, so Neville continues to tell his audience, here is a mingled mood. You know you are incapable of doing those glorious things, and yet those glorious things written in your biography you are now actually experiencing. For you know the story of the Bible is your story. So I tell you, no one ever walked the face of this earth whose history is written in the world of Caesar that is anywhere near your biography. I don't care who he is. I admire the great Lincoln. I have his biography by many who wrote it, wrote the story of Lincoln. He fades into insignificance when you compare it to your biography, for your biography is the Bible. Can you get any greater biography in the world than that? It's all about you, written in the 40th 40th Psalm. Read it in the 40th Psalm, Psalm 47. Everything said in that book, it's all about me, and when you hear it, you cannot restrain your enthusiasm. You tell it to the whole congregation and tell it to the world, especially when it unfolds within you. Now you speak from experience. You aren't theorizing, and you aren't in any way speculating. So all the promises of God find their yes, their affirmation in you. And the one spoken of is seated here in this audience tonight, clothed and clad in a robe of blood. You aren't clothed in a robe of blood, but you do not know your name, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Now go back to the first chapter of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1, 11. Now the word is detached from the tree of life. The word became flesh and dwelt within us. John 1.14, he detaches it. God tears out of his own being his son, that they all may become as he is, and he actually engrafts them. As we are told in the book of James, receive with meekness the implanted word. James 1.21, the Revised Standard Version. And so that's the word, and you are that word that spore that is now engrafted into that wonderful stock called humanity. And now when you come out, you do not bear the fruit of man. You bear the fruit of that tree from which you were taken. And that was God himself. And the Bible tells you the fruit, so you follow the pattern. When you go home, if not tonight, in the not distant future, Take the book of Hebrews. Every chapter quotes the Old Testament. Number, numberless verses all the way through quote the Old Testament. No other book is quoted, only the Bible. And that Bible is the Old Testament. It lays out the pattern for you. The most marvelous pattern all the way through. You will see, beginning with the very beginning, 
In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Then he tells you who that son is. And the first quote that he makes after that, of whom did he say? And he quotes the second psalm. Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Hebrews 1, 5. There he is quoting the words mentioned by David. Then he goes on, and you receive it in faith. Then he takes the 11th chapter, which is a hymn in praise of faith, and goes forward into the 12th chapter, and shows you these characters who did not receive it. But still they are sustained by the faith of the promise, and they are moving forward until that moment in time when the whole thing unfolds within them. He names all these wonderful characters in scripture who had it, who accepted it on faith but not by works, because works cannot produce it. You either reject it or you believe it. If you accept it, then it is engrafted, and that wonderful spore is engrafted by your acceptance and faith alone. So go and tell them and keep on telling the same story over and over and over. Then it will be grafted and the whole thing unfolds within you. I can't tell you anything more wonderful than to tell you who you are. You may think you are Mr. Brown or you are Mrs. Smith and that's lovely. You are important in your own community in the world of Caesar. But it fades to nothing compared to the being that you really are. You may not have one dime tonight, but if you really believe what I am telling you, you are far richer for your inheritance. And the fourth chapter, the 13th verse of Romans, tells you that you inherit the world. That is a promise. It's not just a little inheritance. You inherit the entire world. While the word translated world does not mean just the earth, it means eternity. The same word translated world in the Old Testament is used to translate eternity. The word is Olam. He puts Olam into the mind of man. Yet so that man cannot find out what he has done from the beginning to the end. Ecclesiastics 3.11 In the end he comes into his inheritance, and that is the universe. He owns everything. He owns eternity. So that is a glorious being that you are, and no one can paint it on earth. You can't paint the being that you are. I could begin, and how I would fail would be miserable. To tell you how glorious you really are, to try to describe the glory of your body, and it is a body, may I tell you, this is not some fable. It's a body, a living, living body, that is so altogether right it is perfect. You cannot improve upon perfection. As your Father in heaven is perfect, you must be perfect. And clothed in that body wherever you go, it is perfect. And you don't raise a finger to make it so. There is no effort on your part. You do nothing. Everything tr transforms itself before you. And it's all perfect, all unearthly beautiful. That's the being that you are, and you dwell upon it. When you go to bed at night, dwell upon it. Dwell upon what you really are. 
as against what your bank balance tells you. That's not the thing that you are. You are destined to inherit the world, but there is an interval between receiving the promise of the inheritance and then actually coming into possession of it. When you are given the promise, and we are all given the promise, we were declared heirs. When we actually obtain the promise, we receive our inheritance. And that is the difference between Christ in us and we in Christ. Christ in us is a universal gift of God. It means his son buried in all, therefore sons. Now we in Christ is when the individual comes out, and the individual is, corporate, is incorporated into the one body. As told you in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in all. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. If he is above all, he is transcendent. If he is through all, he is omnipresent. And if he is in all, he is immanent. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. I've never heard that word. I can't turn any place to touch him because he is immanent. Sorry, that's an interesting word for me. Uh, he is in all. If he is through all, he is omnipresent. Therefore, he is present. And he is never so far off as to even be near, for nearness would imply separation. He is not separate. He is not only transcendent, he is omnipresent. And he, omnipresent, and he is immanent. And he is the being you are destined to be. In spite of the fact you have a body, yet you are omnipresent, you can't describe it in three-dimensional terms. You can't describe it in the world of Caesar, but that is the being that you are. And wherever you are, you are perfect, and the world is perfect. So I can tell you from my own experience that the promise made in the beginning of time before we started the journey, and if you read it carefully, you will read it in these words. And a deep, deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and he slept. A darkness descended upon the earth, and a deep sleep fell upon him, and he slept. And as he slept, that the Lord spoke and gave that foreshadowing. Your descendants will go into a land that is strange, a land that is not theirs, and they will be enslaved, and they will be oppressed four hundred years. Afterwards they will come out with great inheritance. And then comes the statement of the promise of the child. How will I know it? He is going to laugh. And I can't describe the laugh of the child any more than I can describe the beauty of David. I know great sculptors have tried their best to paint and to sculpt David. They can't. He is too beautiful. You cannot describe the beauty, which is the essence of the experiences of being man. It all comes out as one being, a youth and a turtle youth. He's not an old man. Eternity is youth. But man paints him as an old, old man, and yet eternity is eternal youth, and it's David. And that is the result of your oppression in the world of Caesar. And having reached the end, I share it with you. No one will grow. No one will be better than the other, because all will be God. And you can't transcend, I'm sorry, you can't transcend a God. Everyone is destined to be God. 
and there's nothing but God. Now, this being the last night, and it may be my last night in a literal sense of the word, let us, after the silence, bring any question that is in or that is on your mind to clarify the, this evening or whatever you want from the last ten lectures. Now, let us go into the silence. Now, are there any questions, please? Mrs. Berryhill says, Will you please explain the meaning of the last verse of Hebrews 11, the 11th chapter, where it tells that they should not be made perfect? And Neville says that 11th chapter comes to its end in the 4th verse of the 12th chapter. It begins, as you know, with a definition of faith, and then it begins with taking Enos and the characters all the way through who had not yet received the promise. Yet they were sustained by faith because the whole chapter is a hymn in praise of faith. But go through to the fourth verse of the twelfth chapter. In spite of their not receiving the promise, they still remain faithful. These characters are states of consciousness. They are not individuals as we are. These are states through which we pass. And in spite of all the wonderful things that the character said, they still remain faithful but did not receive the promise. I hope that everyone here tonight will go to the grave in faith. Even if you do not, between now and that moment in time when you depart the world, actually experience what I have experienced, it is my hope that you will. Then you will be numbered among those named in the 11th chapter right up through the 4th verse of the 12th. Remain faithful even though it has not erupted. There are those in my southern class down on L.A. and those in New York who write me of their experiences. But I do know they are all human enough to want to write me and tell me it has happened to them. Many of them have had marvelous adumbrations of the word, wonderful adumbrations. It is not the true word, but it is a wonderful foreshadowing that should come in the not distant future. It is not the word, but it is a marvelous foreshadowing. Many of them are having it. So I only ask everyone to remain faithful like those mentioned in the 11th and into the 4th verse of the 12th. They remain faithful, although they had not yet received the promise. The promise is the child. That is the beginning of all the promises. I will give you a son that will, bear your, that will be your own heir. And the heir born into your house, which is now the son of the slave, won't be your heir. You will have your own heir when Sarah will conceive and have a child. And Sarah laughed. But so did Abraham laugh. But he wasn't criticized. Sarah was criticized. And he said, why did Sarah laugh? When it is obviously stated that Abraham laughed too. It seems ludicrous if you take it on the literal side, in the secular sense. He was an old, old man, a hundred years old. And Sarah was an old woman, ninety years old. The journey is so long, and after all these years, am I still going to have this child that was promised? Now it comes to us at the end of the journey. That is when it comes to all. When the child comes, it is the end of the journey. The word telos means end. It means be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The word perfect is defined from the word telos, meaning the end. When you reach the end, the child is born. He had reached the end, and strangely enough, he was a hundred years old. And a hundred is, I don't know how to pronounce it, it's Q-O-P-H, quof, and quof is the back of the head. 
That is the symbol of the number 100 right at the back of the head, exactly where you find the vibration starting, and you feel your whole head is coming apart like in an earthquake. And it is from here that you come out, and you are 100 years old, and 100 is a numerical value of the letter of Quo, the back of the head. Are there any further questions? This is the last night, so take full advantage of it. Question by a gentleman. Is there any way to hasten the process? Say by good works. Neville says, no, sir. We are warned in scripture it is not by good works. It's by faith, as we are told in Galatians, the third chapter. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Galatians 1, 1 through 3. So they turned to the physical Jesus, and it was portrayed as you go to, to a play. I can go to a play tonight, and the same actor who is killed on the stage tonight, a lot of tomato juices running all over his vest is blood. I can go back tomorrow night and see the same actor be killed again and the next night, and the next night until the curtain comes down. So it was a portrayal. It was not something that actually took place in a physical sense. It was portrayed. It took place in eternity. This drama is actually taking place in eternity, and here we are living in a shadow world. And the evangelists were not writing history. They were writing salvation history. When they wrote the story, they only related their own experience. You cannot hasten it, and may I tell you don't try to. Be kind, be loving, gentle, be all the lovely things in this world. You will find it so much easier to be kind, so much easier. If people would only realize how much easier it is to be, while well, civil. When you go into a restaurant, why must you be uncivil because he or she waits upon you? You are the same people, so they are playing the role of a waiter. Well, what, what's wrong with that? Why must they? Because they are playing the part of a waiter be treated as an inferior. Respect them. They respect you. And so the whole vast world, just be kind. If you are ever in doubt, do the loving thing. And you've done the right thing. But as to hastening this thing, may I tell you from my own experience, when I went to sleep in this city in 1959, on the night of the 19th of July, I hadn't the slightest idea of the literacy of the promise of scripture. I only knew the law. Well, I taught the law from the second day of February, my wife's birthday, 1933. I taught it because I had experienced it. I tried it and it worked. I found that if I assumed a state and remained faithful to that assumption, well, it would work. It would, it would crystallize into fact. Well, I was so excited that it worked, I began to teach it. I had not the slightest idea of this glory, of the promise. It happened to me suddenly, right in this city 12 years ago, the last 20th of July. And I certainly did not work for it because I didn't know it. It came like a shot out of nowhere. So all the meditation in the world isn't going to produce it. All the diets in the world will not produce it. All the things you do will not produce it because it was promised by God and it is not contingent upon anything that one can do. Man is the operant power. 
When it comes to the law, he has to operate the law. But when it comes to God's promise, that will come true, whether you believe it or not. Stalin may be the greatest atheist in the world. Still, it is going to prove itself in him. But the law, we are the operant power. We have to operate the law. But when it comes to God's promise, God made the promise. And there was no one with whom he could agree when he swore. So he swore by himself as we are told in Genesis 15:18, Finding no peer, he has no peer. So when he came to the point of swearing this testimony, this covenant, finding no one, he swore by himself. And so that is God's promise to himself, and God is faithful. Unlike man who goes astray and changes his loves, God does not change his love. Read it in the 136th Psalm. There are 26 verses, and every verse ends with, Thy faithful love endures forever. Thy steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136, last line of each verse. 26 times that line is repeated, and Shakespeare said it so beautifully in his 116th sonnet, Love is not love which alters when its alteration finds. Now, all of us are guilty of that violation. Things change in our world and we modify what we call our love. They grow old before our eyes. When we who fell in love with their youth and loved them dearly, and then because they grow old before our eyes, as we before their eyes, we modify what we call our love. That isn't love, for love is not love which alters when its alteration finds. So God never alters. His steadfast love endures forever. Read it in the 116th sonnet of Shakespeare. He was a very, very able man. We read all these marvelous things today. Go first to the Bible for the source. And if you don't find it there, go to Shakespeare. All these so-called original thoughts of men today, they were all plagiarized. Yet in the end, everything, the most original thought in the world, is divine plagiarism. Because it's all God. So the mo most original thought in the world is only divine plagiarism. When you make it yours by belief, it is yours. Anything I've ever said, if you really believe it to the point where, in your dreams, you act upon it, it's yours. Don't say it, it's Neville's, it's yours. When you actually, in your dreams, begin to think in the same manner, with the same beliefs, the same convictions, it is yours. I quote the Bible, and you know what passage I am quoting. But it becomes so much a part of you, you feel as though you wrote it, that you dictated it. It is a part of you, it is all yours. Any other questions, please? Question by a lady. Suppose you were creating some beautiful scene with a person involving or involved in a lovely situation. But over and over again, this is broken by some unlovely memory. Is there any way to overcome that negative tendency? Neville says, my dear, that question was asked 2,000 years ago and answered in this manner. Lord, how often must I forgive my brother? 77 times? Matthew 17, 21. You don't multiply 70 times 7. He answers 77 times. Matthew 17, 22. Well, if you take it, 7 is a sword. Zion is a name. Seventy is the eye until the eye is single, and you cannot move from anything other than the vision. He kept the divine vision in time of trouble. 
If you keep the divine vision in time of trouble, from Jerusalem by William Blake, the eye becomes single. That is 77 times. The lady says, no matter what he has done. Neville says, oh, yes, no matter. I cannot conceive of my daughter, Vicky. I really can't conceive that she could do something that would ever cause me to turn from her. I can't. I watch her with a dog. She has a dog, an all-American dog. Has no pedigree or background. She took it to the obedience class where all other dogs, costing fortunes, have wonderful pedigrees, but she didn't care. This was her dog. She walked with them, too. So when it came to graduation, they had to give her some kind of a certificate. But what to give? So the man very sweetly said, he's an all-American dog. But you know, I can't criticize that dog in the presence of Vicky for anything it does, because whatever it does, it's my fault. You can't criticize the dog. She named it Stanley, and Stanley, if he comes home and for some reason or other misbehaves, well, if she be late in coming, I do the cleaning. And if I tell her when she comes what he did, it's my fault. You didn't walk him when you should have walked him. I should have taken him out before I did, and he would not have done it. It may have come from his front. Maybe he ate something that disagreed with him, but it is my fault. And if it comes that way, she will say, you shouldn't feed him so much. You cannot criticize Stanley to Vicky. That's love. She really should have a farm, a tremendous farm. She should marry some man who loves animals. That is her great passion. Now that is really love. She has a friend who shares her home. The other one cannot change the paper for the birds. She has birds. So when Vicky goes away, the other one can't take care of the birds or the dog. What do they do? They bring them to my home. I have to take the little birds and change the paper and water them and give them feed. And then, of course, I have Stanley with me. And I live in a home where my contract says no dogs. But that doesn't affect her at all. That is what I mean by love. When we love someone as you love a child, if you have a daughter or a son, when you know that they have done something, well, you are not proud of it, on the other hand, you love them, and that's all that matters. Let no one criticize them. You might say something tenderly, but you don't want any third person to pass any opinion. It is between the two of you, and that is how I feel about it. When you love, well, you just love. That's all there is to it. When God loves, he never changes, not in eternity. He has fallen in love with his son, and you are his son. For in the resurrection, man is above the organization of sex, as told us in the book of Galatians. In the resurrection, man is above the... Sorry, I was about to repeat that. There is no Greek, no Jew, no bond, no free, no male or female. We are all one Christ. Galatians 3.28 And so... He fell in love with his sons and called his sons from afar, and he is calling them, one after the other, and his love remains steadfast. He never changes his love. It was on that note that Shakespeare wrote his sonnet, for Shakespeare was a great student of the Bible. In fact, it was interpreted into English in the day of Shakespeare. That is why that King James Version is so beautifully told. It is a monument to the English language because it came in the day of Elizabeth. Where the great giants and the use of their tongue lived, Shakespeare for one. Oh, what a book. And it's all your book. It is all your biography. While the time is up, thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Good night. All right, there we have it. That is the end of part two of Neville Goddard's lecture titled The Promise Fulfilled. 
thank you so much for joining me for another episode. I tr- I've said it before, I truly enjoy reading Neville's lectures uh, many times. I always get something new out of it. So uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and I will see you guys in the next episode. Thank you so much, and have an absolutely wonderful day.